Good evening, everyone. Welcome to AO Journal Club. The topic today is scapular fractures. I am Mai Wen from University of Minnesota. Joining me today are four moderators, Dr. David Weatherby from University of Minnesota, Albert George from Michigan State, Milton Little from Cedar sinai and Chandra Bubulapali from Tulane University. We are honored today to have four world-renowned expert guest speakers. Um, they are the top leaders of the field. Dr. Peter Cole from University of Minnesota, Dr. Clifford Jones from Creighton Medical School, Dr. Bill Abramsky from Vanderbilt University, and Dr. David Ring from University of Texas in Austin. First, we will play the interview video that has been pre-recorded by the uh, four moderators and the four guest speakers, and then we'll convene for questions, answer, and discussion of the article. So without further ado, please uh, start with the first video. Welcome to the Scapula Institute at Regions Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm David Weatherby, trauma and upper limb surgeon with the University of Minnesota and North Star Trauma Network. And it is my pleasure to introduce my mentor, partner, and friend, Dr. Peter Cole. Hi, Peter. Dave. How are you Great doing to tonight? Doing Thanks. very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Peter, tonight we're reviewing your work titled Five to Ten Year Outcomes of Operatively Treated Scapular Fractures, published in 2018. Can you share with us where your enthusiasm and passion for the scapula came from? Yeah, you know, I uh, the truth is, is that it's, it's not necessarily unique to the scapula. I like a surgical challenge, and I like... Uh, um, hard problems. I like um, answering questions. I like addressing things that don't make sense to me. Um, and uh, the scapula is a good fit in a lot of those areas, but I love the talus, the pilon, the midfoot, the uh, pelvis, uh, uh, complex uh, elbow fracture. So, you know, I, I think it, it relates more to those things uh, uh, related to right. hard challenges and new frontiers. Right, than just the scapula itself. That's very fair. What are your thoughts to the philosophy that scapula fractures do just fine on their own? I, 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 the reality is, is that uh, you, 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 you want to tell me that this, this individual is going to do okay? There's no way. I mean, look at all these fractures here. These are patients that had malunion surgery because they've had, uh, in many cases, years of benign neglect that hasn't worked out so well for them. And so there are a lot of hurting patients that aren't fulfilling you know, their life's dreams because of, of the, this approach. So they don't all do well. And we know that there's plenty of literature to show us that subgroups of patients um, uh, simply um, uh, have bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. That's very fair. This publication represents the longest available follow-up in operatively treated fractures. Over the years, have you changed your indications or techniques at all? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot about the treatment of scapula fractures that has changed in my hands. Uh, my, even my physical examination has changed. Mm -hmm. My use of imaging technology, um, workup of chest wall injuries, the use of EMG nerve conduction studies. 
my surgical approaches certainly have evolved. Um, you know, we, we um, have been working on a mini modified uh, approach, uh, a mini Jude approach, a Mio approach, um, all to address different kinds of fracture patterns. For example, I almost never take down the deltoid muscle anymore from the spine of the scapula, which mm -hmm. is, uh, I think, an important, uh, uh, an important thing not to do because it's not necessary uh, in, in the majority of cases. Um, uh, reduction techniques. There are lots of tricks and tools I've left behind, uh, and, uh, and, and I think I have a more efficient effective way of operating through smaller windows now than I used to. A major takeaway from this research is that with surgical intervention, we can maintain upper limb function. Can you comment on how this evidence helps us answer our patient's question of, well, what will my function be without surgery? We've done many studies on all kinds of variants of scapula fractures, on scapula fractures in the elderly, on extra articular, on intra articular, on double lesions. Um, and uh, even in the five to 10 year study, we are able to show that function can be nearly normal. Now, when you put up a three dimensional CAT scan, and spin it for the patient, and they see their deformed and angulated and displaced bones, e even they get it mm -hmm. uh, often. And so, you know, there's a logical component, but I don't know of any other bone in the body that I use two centimeters of displacement and 45 degrees of angulation as a threshold for surgery. Mm -hmm. So I think we're sufficiently conservative in our indications for surgery. And, and I tell them that I think that they're going to struggle with some limitation of motion, fatigue with overhead activities, um, many times pain as evidenced by, you know, a lot of patients that I've operated on, almost a hundred now malunions that, you know, I, I know they don't all do well and that function and form and dysfunction and deformity are related to each other. Right, very fair. So what are your thoughts on expanding this research to a randomized controlled trial? Yeah, no, the RCT question is fair. We always hold that up as the holy grail, the, 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 the coup de grace of investigational research that's gonna put all arguments and discussion to rest, mm -hmm. right? I've yet to see that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree. And the reason is there are a lot of problems, especially applying RCTs to rare injuries with still limited expertise. And, um, and, and, and it's because surgeon equipoise isn't, uh, is a variable that we, we can't control for. Um, it's because uh, there's a 40% or so non-acceptance rate of the patients to be included in those trials. It's always a challenge for me when I do RCTs for the patients to accept that they'll be treated randomly. So the dropout is high. Um, should we chase that ideal? I, I think it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but do I need it to you know, inform 
the surgery that I do for patients, the indications that I have, the discussion that I have with patients, you know, I, I don't think I need that to tell me it's the right thing to do. How's that? So lastly, what advice would you have for those of us trauma and shoulder surgeons that don't have nearly as high volume in these injuries? <laughs> Malarkey. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I certainly don't think that's true. If you have, uh, if you're a fellowship trained trauma surgeon and you have treated hundreds of patients and thousands of fractures, you know how to treat a scapular fracture. To get in and out, reduce a bone, fix it safely, you're, you have the capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. Supposing Charles Neer and Emile Letronel had said that, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, come on. If you're a mountaineer and you have expertise and you have cr crampons and pitons and someone shows you a mountain, you don't say, oh, I've never, I've never climbed that mountain. Mm -hmm. That mountain's never been climbed. No, you say, hell yeah, I want to climb that mountain. And I say the th same thing for the scapula. Well, malarkey indeed. Thank you so much Cheers. for your time tonight, Dr. Cole. It's great to hang out with the AO again. Absolutely. Yeah. Good morning. I'm Milton Little from Cedar sinai And I have the pleasure here today of uh, sitting with Dr. Cliff Jones, uh, who's down in Arizona. And we'll be talking about his um, memorable 2007 article on the modified Judea approach to glenoid and scapula fractures with mini fragment fixation. Um, you know, this is an article that I, I go back to very often whenever I'm treating these injuries and I send to my fellows and, and residents uh, in preparation for the residents or in preparation for the procedures. And so for me, many questions come up when thinking about this article. And kind of the first one uh, was, what led you to, to move forward with this article and to investigate these injuries? Well, the, the biggest reason is uh, old timers like myself, <clears throat> if you look at the approaches that are really the Judea approach where you made your <clears throat> L-type incision over the scapular spine down the medial border, and then you literally peeled off everything from the scapula, and, and you've got, you skeletonized the entire scapular component of that. And so back in my era, there weren't a whole lot of these being operated on. I think that's been advanced quite a bit concerning, you know, I think we can uh, debate who you should operate on and why. But clearly some patients hit that category of, you know, displaced intraarticular glenoid fractures and uh, very displaced scapular body fractures. And Bill Obramski wrote the original component of modified Judea uh, really for scapular body fractures, that classic relative lateralization of the inferior body component. So we want to take a look at our papers, our patients to see how well they did or how poorly they did. Because also the other components, if you look at some of the literature was that patients ended up having compartment syndromes after you operated on them and so forth. So again, I think that's a lot due to that stripping component of the entire scapular body. And it definitely gets you to where you need to go. But I think, you know, taking all the muscular components off the scapula sometimes defeats the purpose of why you're fixing the scapula, which is to regain your function. Yeah. 
So really, if you're looking at that um, medial angle uh, where uh, the fracture component usually is medially and that lateral border, which you can get to in between the infraspinatus and teres minor, uh, that we thought that that would be a good enough approach to get us where we need to do to do the meat and potatoes of the procedure. In other words, realign the scapular body uh, and get to the glenoid both. Of course, that means that you have to peel off the deltoid, and that is one component that you're peeling off actually the entire uh, cephalad or cranial component of the deltoid. Um, and you reattach that, of course, through little drill holes. But we want to take a look at could we do the glenoid components that have not been written about and the scapular body components all through that modified day? And we looked at this. And we, I think, concluded that they did pretty well. We did have three complications of stiffness all in um, intraarticular glenoid fractures. Um, um, that might have been higher, lower with a different type of approach. We don't know, but that's not bad. 10% um, and an end result of about 158 degrees for your range of motion. So our complications were very low. And I thought that we could get to all the components of the scapula and glenoid through that approach. And then I guess the other question I always ask is oftentimes our articles or our studies end up being things that we've already done in practice and we've become, you know, not necessarily facile, but are kind of moving in that direction. Had you already been doing a number of kind of standard Judea approaches? and saw yourself shift towards that modified Judea approach? Or was that kind of what you initiated in practice as soon as you started fixing these injuries? Well, again, way back uh, when we were looking at this in the 90s, that uh, I still thought the Judea was a fairly morbid type of approach. And so I, I made the approach to fix the fractures using the Judea, but then started looking at in the first couple, boy, I can get to this with, through these intervals. I really don't have to strip this off or I really don't need to fix six millimeter screws to this mid body portion of it. It's really the, those um, corridors, that medial and lateral corridor where you've got you know 16 to 20 millimeter screws laterally and maybe 10 millimeter screws medially to do what you need to do to get the overall uh, anatomy realigned. So, we wanted to take a look at, could we get to that? Uh, because we were doing this more and more and do the, do as good a job as you can with the Judea. And did you really need to fix all those small little particles and, and pieces of bone on the inside portion? And uh, we found that, the, again, the results look pretty good with very displaced fractures, maintaining most of the uh, muscular origins on the scapular spine. You know. I the other thing that I noticed is that, you know, as I do more of these injuries, you know, the first time you do it, that interval seems very, very tight. And then as you do it more and more, that interval starts to open up and you start to feel more comfortable as you expand proximally and distally. You know, even on the medial side, it just, it becomes more comfortable. Have you found yourself changing your practice now? in terms of how much you have to take the deltoid off or whether you take the deltoid off as much as, as you did previously? Um, or are you expanding your indications for fixing these injuries? 
I think that's a great question. And I, I will agree with it that I have. And so some of these very displaced ones that are floating shoulder with ribs, which again, we can debate the, the indications I find to have some of the worst outcomes uh, because I think you get a tongue and groove deformity with that displaced scapula and the impacted uh, ribs that some of these more simple patterns, I think you can actually get to actually by doing a um, almost a submuscular approach where you're just doing a lateral border mm -hmm. incision or a medial angle type of incision to get where you need to go. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> also, I think some of these um, that uh, you can get to that, I will leave the actually the entire deltoid on. Uh, it's just maybe the, the medial angle where you have to take some of that off to get a plate underneath that angle. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm trying to keep more and more of the deltoid on because, again, I think it, it keeps your function as good as possible if you can maintain your natural origins into that site. The other one is that I think I've gotten a lot better at finding the interval in between the um, deltoid and the teres minor. And that's, uh, I think, is a subtle component, but I think it means a big deal. If you can really find that fascial plane Mm -hmm. Get your finger in between it to really keep those muscle attachments and, and integrity intact. I think that also provides a lot uh, for your functional component long term. Yeah. Um, if there, you know, I, you know, as we get down to to end of the, our time together, if there was one or two major takeaways you can say from that article and how that's impacted your future, uh, I'd love to hear. Sure. I, actually, one of the components I think is is interesting um, is that, again, that I, I think if you're operating on the scapula for certain deformities, that clavicular fixation does not change that. Again, it gets yeah. into the papers by Tornetta and Obremsky that it's relative lateralization. So it doesn't change that unless you've got, of course, a glenoid uh, mm -hmm. neck. Uh, that's going to change that some. So definitely clavicular fixation does not change the scapular anatomy. It'll change the, the droop or the winging to your shoulder, but it won't change the, uh, the scapular anatomy, number one. Number two is I think the more you can get out to the scapula, leaving the muscular attachments, I think the better functional anatomy you'll get long-term concerning that. Well, I, I appreciate you getting up early and I thank you for your time today. Um, you know, this article is something, like I said, something that I look to very often and I try to pass on to my junior residents and my uh, my fellows. And uh, we really appreciate your work. Thank you very much. All right. Have a wonderful day. You too. I'm here with uh, Dr. Bill Obremsky from Vanderbilt discussing his article, Understanding the Concept of Medialization and Scapular Fractures. Uh, Dr. Obremsky, uh, starting off, uh, first of all, thanks for joining us. Um, and uh, starting off, what gave you the idea for this article? Well, I like uh, most people, uh, I think at the time, sort of learned that, uh, that the, from a blow to the side of the shoulder that the glenoid medialized. I mean, I said it, it was in the books. Uh, and uh, that's just was the dogma at the time. And once I finished my residency uh, at Harbview, where I saw one scapular fracture have fixation, and I think I was in the third row, third or fourth row then, because it wasn't that common. Uh, and I, you know, was in practice at the University of North Carolina, and 
uh, started, you know, doing scapular fractures because no one else would. And I thought, uh, you know, that some of them clearly needed to get fixed and no other particular joint did we allow two to three centimeters of displacement as being okay. And so I started fixing them. And on my very first one, you know, using the classic Jude approach, I just noticed that it wasn't, I wasn't lateralizing the glenoid to reduce the fracture. I was medializing the body. Uh, and that that's what had happened, that the muscle attachment had broken and the whole uh, body shifted laterally. And it just brought that into question of was that really true, that dogma that from the lateral blow uh, that caused the medialization of the glenoid. Um, and so we tried to do a couple studies to really understand that. Uh, and so that sort of started the, uh, the idea for the, uh, for the article. Yeah, I, I love that. Just uh, seeing something that's taught as dogma and then real life experience being different and, and then studying that. And, um, you know, that's a, it's a difficult thing to study. So did you, how did you choose upon the, the study method that you came upon? Well, there was first, as in most things, you try to look at the literature and see if there's anything there. And there was just nothing there. Uh, and so this was during the evolution of 3D CT scans. And so we decided to look at three things, just tried to look at uh, plain chest x-rays on presentation, uh, and then trying to measure from the midline to the uh, most lateral aspect of the glenoid neck we could find uh, as one measure, and then two on the axial cut CT scans, and then three on 3D CT scans. And our findings certainly held up with our, uh, with my impression is that uh, the glenoid was actually not really farther away or uh, medialized, was, in, was not closer on the injured side than the uninjured side in the unilateral uh, injuries that we looked at. And in fact, there was a trend towards being farther away, which I thought was really puzzled. And and then I think my aha moment there is I'm looking at the CT scan, at the axial CT scans. And if you look at almost every time there's a, um, a, uh, an axial CT, so the traumagram of a, uni, of a unilateral scapular, um, bad scapular body, what you see is this intense swelling on the side where the soft tissue between the scapula and the rib cage is actually thicker. And I think that just that trauma pushes it farther away. Uh, we, uh, I think, was the overall finding that there was certainly not less uh, closer to the midline, and often it was farther. It was another aha moment and maybe explaining why. Interesting. Then why do you think that the glenoid medialization was the, what was taught and is what is found in textbooks? And is, is I, still I have no idea because I didn't write those. Um, but it's, it's not so uncommon in many things we do in orthopedics. I mean, when I started as a junior resident at Harborview, you never put a nail in an open tibia. You always had to have an X fix. And so why do we do that? Well, you know, fear of infection. And you never closed an open wound um, of an of a open fracture the first time. You always had to go back for a second washout. There are many things that we have done and probably continue to do in orthopedics and orthopedic trauma that are based on dogma. And, you know, I've liked to think a lot of my career is trying to bust some dogma. 
and uh, I certainly hope that our next generation were are critically thinking enough to continue to bust the dogma that that uh, that we're doing. And this was just one of them. And I I think in the article we even quote several of the um, you know classic shoulder texts from Rockwood and Green to you know Rick Matson was my chair in uh, in residency in his book The Shoulder. Um, it clearly says you know medialization or impaction of the uh, of the injury where it really wasn't. I think it made sense that people took a blow and maybe have medialized it, but that's not where it really happened. I, I do have one caveat to the medialization, um, uh, you know, statement. There are probably one specific variety of scapula uh, glenoid neck fractures that medialize, and those are what I call it the shallow neck. It's where the, the very neck of the glenoid dissociates from the, from the spine and from the rest of the scapula body. And I just call it the shallow neck because then that really falls forward and probably medially. That that's the one though variant of scapular fractures that uh, there probably really is some medialization, but the vast majority don't break that way. That's, I would say it's probably 5%. And Peter Cole's done a nice job of outlining the the mapping of that. And it's a very low percentage that has that as the primary fracture line. Uh, uh, what are the major takeaways of the study? Well, I, I think it's more just uh, understanding the concept. Uh, I think as it says is that, you know, like to this day, some of our residents, you know, come in and present the, the fracture and say, and here's the medialized, you know, glenoid neck fracture. And I'm like, time. Let's, let's talk about that. Uh, and, and so it, it still occurs because it's, a, I think it's a, it's a simple way to understand it, but I don't think that's really what happens. Uh, and so I think the, and that, and that drives your reduction. I mean, the goals of this are if you're going to think they should be operated on. And, and I might say a caveat that we don't know exactly which fractures need to be operated on some very smart friends of mine, you know, think none of them should be operated on. And I can't say we have a good prospective observational or randomized trial of displaced glenoid neck and scapular body fractures that definitively, um, you know, proves that they need an operation. I would say that it doesn't make any sense. No other paraticular fracture, do we allow that degree of displacement? And that I think that our ability to quantify the displacement and the shoulder function hasn't been good enough. We just haven't done that study. I, you know, one year at the podium uh, during a controversial uh, discourse between uh, two of our uh, esteemed uh, OTA, <laughs> OTA members, um, challenged them both to to maybe work together to do that. And we, we actually did a prospective observational trial for a while, I got some AO grant funding for it. Um, I think unfortunately it didn't quite pan out the way we thought and we haven't uh, been able to get that published and probably never will. Uh, but I still think it's a great study for anybody listening to do. And you're just gonna need a lot of centers uh, and agree at the beginning, what is displacement? How do you measure it and what is function? So that's a great study still and it needs to be done by our organization. Okay. What are the uh, what are the limitations of the study? 
Oh, the limitations of the study we wrote, I, I think, are anything that's a, you know, a measurement is imprecise and in, intra and inter-observer reliability of measurements. Um, and so, and it's certainly not blinded because you know which one's broken <laughs> and you knew, and I knew what my bias was. Uh, so that's always questionable. So I would say that the, the main um, uh, limitations are reproducibility of the image with chest x-rays. That's clearly something a little bit tilted one way or the other rotationally uh, was, a, uh, was a limiting factor. And then bias of the um, measure and then reproducibility of that measurement um, on, uh, on different days has been, could be questioned. Um, what is it going back? If there's, um, anything you would do differently if you had to redo the study now? Oh, um, I'm sure that with the, the improved 3d, um, ability to, to create a 3d image, uh, that it could probably easily be reproduced. It's been more than 10 years. So anybody out there listening, have at it uh, and, and please reproduce and, and do it better uh, and probably have the same person repeat their measurements at a two to three week time period uh, for everybody who does it. So you can do some intra and inter-observer reliability um, uh, assessment. All right, Dr. Rain, thank you very much for joining us for this. And uh, we'll be discussing your article, Extra Articular Scapular Fractures, Comparison of Theoretical and Actual Treatment. And first off, I think the biggest question for me, is, just like with any of these journal articles, is what, what prompted you to do this study? What was the inspiration behind this article? The, you know, there's, there's an appropriate discussion about whether there's an opportunity to evolve the way we treat scapular fractures. And um, Peter Cole, somebody who I've known for a while and spoken with, and he's, he's a strong enthusiast and, and it's, it's important to listen to people that have new ideas and uh, consider whether we may have been complacent about something in the past, not in the sense of doing it wrong, but more in the sense of, um, there are options uh, going forward. By the same token, there was this sense that, uh, it, you know, when, when something is done one way for a long time with no really glaring deficiencies, it, you should be, one should be very critical and cautious when somebody says, let's completely flip the paradigm. Um, an example might be clavicle, displaced clavicle fractures. Now, the concept that they all heal was clearly wrong, but the concept that they mostly do fine is clearly right, because now that we have several randomized trials and we look at patient report outcome measures, whether or not your fracture heals, people do okay. And that's why it wasn't on our radar before. And you know, my, my career has been about what patient report outcome measures measure. They, you know, they measure capability and comfort, and those have to do a lot with accommodation. And accommodation has a lot to do with how you interpret what's going on with your body. 
So there's a risk in introducing a new concept, specifically new thresholds, where you now set a standard for clinicians and patients to worry and feel like they're under-treating or being under-treated or have made the wrong choice or are making the wrong choice. And that's, that undermines everything that's important to most of us about exploring people's values, um, making sure that their choices are consistent with their values and being very careful about the, the, the balance of potential harms and potential benefits from surgery, which surgery starts at a deficit because you're, it starts with an, um, an injury, it starts with a knife. And I think surgeons forget that. We routinely forget that. I think the lay public may also, if you watch Grey's Anatomy, that seems to be the case, but it, actually, it absolutely starts with an injury. And so you're in deficit, you must have some benefit. And so the, the teaching has been that with uncommon exception, scapula fractures do well, they heal, that's not a problem. Um, malunion seems to be well tolerated. I think we've all seen somebody with scapular thoracic crepitation. That's not very fun. Um, but the but the relative uh, uh, change in the shape of shape or angulation of the bone has been something that people could accommodate fairly well. And so what I wanted to do was say, what's the gap? What's the potential leap that would happen if everybody started uh, following these guidelines? And, and just to take, like, take a pause and say, are we okay with that? Yeah, I think those are very fair points. And just as you said, it's always good to evaluate whenever there's a suggested or proposed shift in the current paradigm of how things are usually treated. And that was shown in this paper, I thought that there's a huge discrepancy between the number of patients and fractures that met the criteria, or at least one or two of them, versus the ones that actually got operative management. And then also what was actually fixed or the way it was treated was not really in line with the recommendations from the article that's referenced. What do you think kind of went into those discrepancies? Is it just experience? Is it, once again, not knowing whether this is a fully borne out criteria that makes a big difference, like you're sort of saying, what do you think was the reason for that? I think on the one hand, the discrepancy between guidelines that are suggested and what's actually done shows the whole reason to try to think about guidelines. I think, um, you know, when we look at variations in care between from surgeon to surgeon, there's always an opportunity there. I mean, there should be variations from patient to patient based on how, they're, how they assess the relative advantages and disadvantages of treatment approaches, but there shouldn't be much variation from surgeon to surgeon. That, that doesn't really make much sense. I mean, we should all have available to us, even if we don't have the skills, we can get people to the skills to take care of the uh, fracture in the, in, the, in the most available, in whatever available ways there are. So all options should be available to us. We should be able to get down to the, to the preference, uh, the, 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 the treatment option that suits the patient's values that fits what matters most to that patient. So there shouldn't really be much surgeon to surgeon variation. And whenever you see that, um, there is an opportunity to improve, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, the, but the other thing is that, uh, so that shows the value of potentially making guidelines. And then the, the downside of potentially making guidelines is um, it, it's, 
the unless there's a clear it's just hard to draw a bright line where something is worse if you don't operate and and suggesting that it's not hard and and actually uh, uh, promoting a certain threshold um, again creates these it can create a pressure towards treatments that uh, might not match people's assessment of what fits their values. In other words, let's say, I mean, I would certainly in everything in my life lean towards non-operative treatment. I think a lot of surgeons are that way. We, 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 we know we, we love to be surgeons because we know there's places where surgery is absolutely needed. Um, you know, some of the surgeries that we do are life-saving, like an opium tibia fracture used to kill you. Uh, so we are, uh, we are very happy with our skills and, and delighted with our work. And yet we realize that there is that, in, that just initial deficit of what surgery is. It, it, it's, it's controlled or strategic harm. And therefore we personally would like to avoid it. And we would, we would uh, think that most of our patients would like to avoid it as well. So if we create this threshold where you look at your x-ray and either it looks bad or you measure it bad and all of a sudden if you choose against surgery you're making the wrong choice i don't think that's the way we want to formulate this i think we want to say um hey look i found some evidence that these thresholds may be associated with more discomfort and more incapability and then and then somebody could say okay what's the strength of the evidence for that oh it looks like it's still pretty provisional and then if they say, well, let's say let's, that's, that evidence is convincing to me. I'm, I'm sold on that. So what's the difference? Like, what do I gain if I, if I line things up better? What's the gain? And then you show them the gain. It's like, well, that's not, that's not a whole lot of gain. I'm not sure that that's a good enough payoff for me to invest the, uh, uh, the, in the potential harms of surgery. And then some of those harms are, are, are large. You know, so there's, some, there's like a, the, the outlier really bad outcomes. Um, <clears throat> so I think that there's nuances to it rather than a winner. And that's the thing we all, you don't want to, whenever somebody's formulating something that sounds like who wins or loses, I always look at biomechanical studies this way. There are, everybody's always trying to find the winner. I, I just categorically find nothing useful in biomechanical studies, mostly because of that. Um, and also because they also prove the, the obvious, which we studied one time. Um, uh, so I, I think we, we want to make sure that the discussion is about refining the potential harms and potential benefits and refining how we uh, come to agreement, all clinicians and all patients, about the factors that are the ones to weigh when we're considering potential harms and potential benefits of surgery. Thank you. Those are wonderful uh, interviews from the, the moderators and the authors. Um, so I just want to encourage everyone to put the questions in the Q&A and then we'll uh, go through them. Um, I have one question to start and uh, just like any injuries in orthopedics, uh, I think there's a variations in terms of our indications for patient for surgeries and the injuries that we see. Um, as evidenced by some of the, the papers here. And I just want to go through the panels uh, with uh, our four authors as well as our um, uh, moderators. Uh, what is the percentage of scapular fracture that you see in your practice that you indicate for, for surgery? So 
I'll start here. I have first is Dr. Obramsky. Sure, I would guess that it's uh, maybe 10%, but the vast majority are minimally displaced scapular body fractures that are extra-articular. Uh, I think, you know, Peter and Cliff, we have a fairly similar threshold, two to three centimeters, 30 to 45 degrees of angulation. I think if you look at chest wall injury, clavicle medialization, all tend to push me towards uh, fixation, as well as combined with patient to physical exam, patients who just can't move their arm, they can't generate force because their length tension uh, is completely disrupted of their uh, scapulothoracic uh, motion. Uh, in combination with the desire to have an operation, I've had people who no doubt fit the criteria, and they say, no, 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 um, I'm, I'm afraid of surgery or I'm Amish or my religious beliefs don't allow it. And so it's got to be all have got to line up x-rays exam and uh, patient desire. Great. Dr. Cole. Um, 12%, 12% of the patients that arrive to our trauma room uh, are operated uh, that have scapular fractures. We've, we've, we've looked at that data over the years and it's actually trended downward uh, from about 14 to, to 11 uh, or so. Uh, but as Bill says, the vast majority don't require surgery or, or are not indicated. Dr. Jones? I agree. I would also say that my, my indications for surgery have changed a lot. Uh, enthusiasm to, to looking at that many of these people do pretty well without surgery. Uh, despite a lot of displacement. I think everyone's made those same comments. I think it's aligning the expectations of the patient. If they do a lot of overhead activities with a, um, a, uh, a droopy shoulder and as Bill stated, the inability to do much from a functional component and or the other one that Bill probably didn't talk about was the glenopolar angle component, I think is one that's, you know, compare with a contralateral side more than 10 degrees really changes your shoulder dyskinesia. But I think the other thing that's changed is my enthusiasm looking at this more and more has become less. But I also I think that as you stated from the two other people, I think the chest wall injuries or the four quarter injuries, something that we really have not elucidated very well of how that comes into play. In other words, clavicle ribs and scapula uh, are, are something that I think is a very different injury uh, that is, you know, from side impact type of things that I don't know the answer for that. But my indications are probably south of 10%. And Cliff or Peter, I think I put a question in the, uh, in the chat. Just the other indication that's really changed me is the closed head injured patients. Uh, I'm just curious on your opinion on that. I've really backed away from some of those with a bad head injury. Um, because of the HO that uh, had a couple patients just to, if you do all that dissection and their whole posterior musculature turns to bone, I don't think I've helped them. Yeah, I, I think it's also one that's changed. I, I think Peter would probably agree that doing some uh, direct exposures rather than extensile exposures for some of these people allows you to get what you need to do, kind of your lateral border, your medial angle type of thing, and or just fixing the clavicle to get the shoulder out to length really changes a lot of those types of things. I also think that probably compared to 20 years ago, there's a lot more enthusiasm with the general surgeons to fix chest wall injuries. That's it's changed a lot of this also. 
Dr. Wayne, do I you think, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, I just want to finish with the author about the, the, the answer. Do you agree with the uh, uh, 10 to 14% that have been, seems like pretty closely agreed by the, the pre? You're asking me? Um, yeah, I don't, I guess I wouldn't think of it in terms of percentages. I, I would think of it more in terms of the people who uh, qualify to be offered a surgery based on the criteria we're talking about, you know, I'd say less than half of them choose to go forward with it. I, I'll give you that number. I'm sorry, Dr. Cole, I, I interrupted you. Well, just for context, um, when you we look at the pop population of patients that meet the uh, the guidelines that Dr. Ring is referring to um, that are, I, I think, mostly well accepted on this panel um, as uh, um, pivot points to discuss, uh, you, you know, the, the potential benefits for surgery. 80% of those patients have rib fractures and, and a third of them have clavicle fractures. So the reality is, is that if the energy is high enough to displace and angulate the, uh, the scapula fracture um, that meets indications, um, the, the truth is it's usually in the context of uh, other, um, other underlying fractures. And I think Cliff is absolutely right. The lateral implosion uh, injury of the forequarter is a, is a big deal and it needs to be thought of as, uh, as an entire unit as we would think of the, you know, the ankle, wrist or elbow. Um, and, and it's not a scapula in isolation. And, uh, and I think that um, the indications for stabilization of other um, injuries uh, will evolve over time to uh, probably a more, more aggressive uh, approach. Um, in, in terms of thresholds for surgery of the chest wall and other double or triple lesions of the superior shoulder suspensory complex and the sternoclavicular joint. It's all, it, it's, it's all connected. Those are great comments. Uh, I, I, I know that the uh, lateral explosion uh, injury are uh, one of the hot topics as well and scapulos um, injury happen in chest fracture as well as well as uh, other uh, fractures around the area and actually one of our moderators uh, Albert George you did some some work on that right Albert yeah actually um, I did some work with uh, Dr. Cole when I was at fellowship in, in Minnesota looking at these injury patterns the four quarter lateral implosion injuries and um, yeah, there's a high association of those injuries and um, I guess in context in Minnesota, the six orthopedic trauma surgeons there are the ones who fix all the rib fractures at, at regions. Um, so that's part of the reason we looked into that uh, to study it more. And like Dr. Cole said, I think that's going to be uh, another kind of frontier for us to, to understand better to, how to take care of these patients. What about well, the rest of the panelists? You know, as we talk about the kind of changes in your approach, i.e., decreasing your, you know, taking down the deltoid, you know, avoiding the extensile approaches when you can and using windows such as the medial and lateral window. You know, you mentioned that you're, you're still doing about 10% of, of the injuries uh, that come in. Do you see that number increasing as you decrease, as you change your approaches? Or do you feel like you're, your indications are becoming tighter, um, even though you have 
approaches that are going to be less extensile and less likely to have HO and other kind of um, associated complications. Uh, Milton, are you addressing that to me? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. You or Cliff, I think we, Cliff and I talked about it a little bit after yeah. the interview, but yeah, I'd hear, love to hear your opinions on it. Sure. Um, you, you know, the reality is, is that uh, um, I, I think the guidelines that um, I established for myself, uh, and, and I prefer the, the term uh, uh, guidelines, it's a starting point for a conversation rather than an indication or, or a threshold. Um, and uh, I, those have not changed. I've changed a lot of things about scapula surgery in 20 years, but I have not changed my indications uh, for you know, the discussion. Um, I've certainly uh, modified the surgical footprint and, and decreased it where, where possible. Um, and uh, I, I uh, you know, to address Dr. Obremsky's question, I, I don't, closed head injury, um, I mean, obviously it comes in all shades, right? I tend to treat people as though they're going to recover because the vast majority do, despite the severity of the original head injury. And I'd rather be you know, doing something that um, I'm facile with in the acute setting, as opposed to something that's uh, fairly, uh, a lot more challenging in the chronic setting, which is uh, most of my practice now is malunion surgery of the scapula. Um, so I, I think that um, uh, the, um, and, and I'm not, so bothered by the extensile Judea approach, um, the five to 10 year study that was presented, um, the majority of those uh, were treated with an extensile approach between 2005 and 2010, because I often didn't see the patient for three or four or five weeks because of things like femur fractures and head injuries and not being able to find someone to, uh, to, to treat them and, and referrals and so on. So um, you know, we do have a phenomena that uh, uh, is a, a part of the, I guess, the reality of, of patients with scapula fractures finding someone to, uh, to help them, uh, that, it, that it, it becomes delayed. And the extensile Judea approach for me is like an ilioinguinal approach. I don't think it's particularly morbid. Uh, and, um, and that was borne out in that five to 10 year study with the um, you know, with, with the outcomes that were documented. And there's a question in the chat. Um, I, I guess I'll pose this to, uh, to you, Cliff. Oh, did Mil you Milt, if I could comment on that, as we talked about it, I don't think it's changed. Yeah, Milt, I, th I think in your question, looking a different way, I don't think it's changed my uh, guidelines or indications, whatever you want to say. But I think as Dave stated earlier, that surgery is injury. And if you can lessen the injury, uh, as you've seen people do more and more percutaneous, you know, for pelvic ring and so forth, there's potentially less injury to the patient and the quicker recovery. So I, I think that it's, my approach has changed being more facile doing the larger exposures, you know, more of the anatomy and what you can kind of do through those windows. But I think doing them, uh, knowing the anatomy and what you can take care of in those Windows just, I think, lessens the injury more than changing the indications or the, the guidelines for those types of things. 
Yeah, I would agree with the Cliff. I think what we probably all changed uh, is our the surgical insult by doing more modified or window approaches or not taking down the deltoid. You know, Peter did a nice study showing you can see just as much without taking down the deltoid. You know, that was done in, I get my caveat to that is that it's done in the cadaver lab where most people are thin, skinny women. Um, but some bulky people and or really muscular people makes it a challenge. And But a first uh, uh, attempt is without having to take it down always, unless you just can't see. Uh, so uh, I think we've all, sounds like we've all have similar indications. Uh, today, I would say years ago, 20 years ago, you know, the Hardiger article, article was at one centimeter. And I wouldn't operate on anybody with one centimeter of displacement. Um, but I, uh, I think we all have settled in in that two to three centimeters and significant angulation, coupled with everything that we talked about, uh, uh, function with patient fits in patients, uh, uh, framework that they want an operation is think as Dr. Ring was pointing out. There's one article that I actually was not able to select because we already have four really good articles already, but Milton, you talk about the tenotomy as an option to expand your field view. Um, I actually have never done that before. Um, do you still, uh, still using that as you get better with the modified Judea? Are you still doing the tenotomy a bit? It wasn't. So the, the reason why we did that article wasn't so much that it was something that we, that I had done a bunch. Um, I had one case, which I did in fellowship with uh, Dave Beret, where we did it. Um, but mainly because, you know, just like, you know, Bill Bremsky said, it's in papers, it's in um, textbooks, but no one says exactly what you see or what it provides you with. Um, so I was just, so we were curious. We had the cadavers, we were doing another study, and I was curious to see what exactly you see and why would people include that tenotomy as a way of increasing visualization. Uh, so that was the main purpose of the article. It was to kind of find out what, what the reason for including that in those textbooks and in the articles and what exactly you did see. I haven't had to do it in practice. Um, and I, you know, I predominantly, I have shifted to using more of the windows um, in most situations. Uh, but I do, I still will do a modified Judea approach when necessary. There's one question here that just came up from the audience. For those who treat scapular fracture prone, when and how do you address concurrent highly displaced coracoid base fracture? And would you position approach differently when the neck and body also need stabilization? Uh, for, for me that, uh, you know, Eidelberg 5 variant uh, where the, the coracoid often attached to a glenoid, uh, the superior glenoid fragment, associated with the, the uh, uh, neck and body is a dual approach. Uh, and uh, so I generally go posterior to stabilize the lateral pillar. Um, and then, um, and, and, and the neck and then go um, anterior in a separate position uh, beach chair to uh, address the coracoid and glenoid through a deltopectoral approach. Interesting. It's a, a chance, a challenging combination. Um, and I, when I'm going to do either the clavicle and the scapula, I'll put them lateral in a bean bag and then just roll them back and fix the clavicle 
and then roll them forward and uh, and fix the scapula. This combination, I agree with Peter, to get that coracoid uh, base, particularly if it's impacted and anterior, that you need to go posterior first to give you a solid structure, and then come anterior with a delta pec. I think as Peter Peter stated, but I would do it all, I would do that all in the lateral position. Yeah, you know, the, the other way, Bill, to, to, to help with that, too, is that, that I've found is when you do the clavicle portion, almost to put their hand behind their hip really extends the shoulder and allows you to get to that uh, clavicle portion in addition. But, yeah, I do, I do mine predominantly in a lateral position. The other thing you can do is is if, if it's a laterally based fracture and the fracture doesn't exit medially, um, you can do a saber incision and just do a straight approach through the back and a deltopectoral through the front uh, from a lateral position, flopping, you know, side to side. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the superior glenoid attached to the coracoid, even the Eidelberg threes are, are, are challenging, even, even with good positioning. And, uh, and I prefer a you know, kind of the optimal uh, uh, patient uh, position for that uh, beach chair for me. Um, there's another question on the chat about uh, whether um, in, in the um, classic fracture patterns, uh, fixation of the lateral border alone is, is adequate. And there may be some difference of opinion on the panel. Um, I think most of the time it probably is ad adequate, but I don't I, I personally don't want to find out which ones uh, it won't work for. I, I like to fix patients and uh, get them moving right away, full passive and active range of motion. And, uh, um, you know, being a, a long flat bone with so many insertions and deforming forces, um, you, um, you know, it, it, there's a lot of, there's a big moment arm when you get patients moving quickly uh, on, uh, on, on the medial and superior surfaces of the scapula that I don't like to leave them unfixed. Um, so do they need it every time? I, you know, I, I, I no, they certainly not. Uh, I'm sure that lateral fixation alone, especially if you did 90-90 or dual plate fixation would, would probably be just fine uh, in uh, the, the majority of cases. Yeah, I would, I would agree with uh... Peter, I guess it depends on the type of the fracture. I mean, sometimes they split like this, you know, where it stays intact, the medial border stays intact, uh, or it just splits up towards the spine uh, and then uh, separates along the lateral border. I, I just look at the entire picture, and uh, if Peter's got those 3D uh, made uh, models, that can really help you understand it. And I think the 3D ability with modern CT scans makes it a whole lot easier. You go where the displacement is, I guess would be my advice to the whoever asked the question. If the fracture is displaced in that plane, then you need to reduce it and fix the fracture just like everywhere else in the body. The, no, uh, I took, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say that, you know, the, the, uh, it may, may be of interest, but the, the 3D prints that uh, Bill is alluding to, um, you know, I have a few here and, uh, uh, and I do this in the mal, mal unions uh, and uh, try to study why it is that patients have uh, significant uh, pain and dysfunction. Now, this one uh, may look innocuous to people. It's extra articular. Um, it, uh, you know, it's a simple fracture that goes from lateral to medial. Um, 
But if you were to measure the glenopolar angle, it's very shallow. Uh, and, uh, and this would be one I imagine would be treated non-operatively in a lot of places, but um, this is a, uh, you know, this is gonna need a reconstructive osteotomy um, as, as is this one, a relatively innocuous looking uh, injury in a, in a young girl that uh, is uh, really dissatisfied with her shoulder slump you can see there a very narrow glenopolar angle, and, and that tends to be the problem with the most literature behind it to support, um, you know, to support surgery. I am somewhat surprised at the agreement that we're able to reach today in, in a panel, really. I, I, you know, I, orthopedic surgeons, I mean, we disagree when it comes to like even femur shaft fracture or hip fracture sometimes. So it's great to have you guys, um, talk about cases and seems to agree for the most part, but it, it bring me to, to my questions about the need of higher evidence and let's say a randomized controlled trial. And Dr. Corrado, you mentioned in the interview already that you don't find that it's helpful for, for you to benefit from your practice, but I'm just wondering for, for surgeons who are not sure of ourselves, like people who you know, still in residency, uh, going through through fellowship, and just really young in practice, and and have treated a lot of these non-operative um, fractures. And to Dr. Ring's point about, for example, how clavicle fracture and higher level evidence have really drastically changed our practice, and at least for from the ABOS data and from um, data from younger surgeons. So I'm wondering, so if, if it's not needed for you guys on the panel, I'm wondering if you would find the need for it so that it can change the practice, not for, for you guys, not for the patient that you're taking care of, but really to change our practice so that it can influence a bigger number of patients who are affected by scapular fracture. Yeah, may I sort of alluded to that and uh, I think Peter is 100% right that this, the rare injuries that are highly technical are not good for prospective randomized trials. And there's a high technical component to it. And uh, I think what you do is you can do prospective observational trials that uh, if you look in the literature of prospective RCTs and prospective um, observational trials, the variation in the results is essentially the same or even lower in the observational trials. Uh, and, uh, and so you can do this study because you have to agree what patients are enrolled, what are the inclusion criteria, what are the exclusion criteria, and then somehow assess outcome of reduction in fixation, and then an agreed upon outcome measure. And I think as David would strongly support that you need patient reported outcomes as well as uh, functional score, uh, um, clinical, uh, clinical scores, activity scores, strength as, as well. It can be done. It's just not easy. But when an orthotrauma, just because something's difficult and uncommon, we won't tackle it. I think that's, I think that's the big thing. I mean, you know, you heard everybody on here say that our, our, we fix anywhere between five and like 15% of these injuries. So it's just a low number and getting that many people to, to accomplish it, right? It's not like clavicle fractures or humeral shaft fractures where you're seeing such a higher number in practice. Yeah, and, and I, I think additionally, when you, you consider, um, you know, the, um, 
the the multiple variables involved in terms of uh, um, clavicular fractures and uh, well, then fifty percent of these indicated fractures have uh, uh, upper extremity injuries or fractures somewhere else. Um, uh, you, you know, ten to fifteen percent have peripheral nerve injury. Um, you know, all the chest wall injuries. Those those are hard variables to sort out in a RCT, let alone, you know, the uniform expertise needed to fix the fractures. Yeah, totally agree, Peter. I think the other thing is that, you know, looking at some of our studies that we've looked at in the past that actually many of these, the chest wall injury uh, determines the outcome more than the scapula and clavicle. And, and, and again, until we tackle that component, uh, I think a lot of our outcome components um, we're saying that this does bad or well uh, is not based upon the reality because we're not countering or, or predicting or counting in the chest wall injuries that in the past everyone's thought as being very different. But I think it's part of the same injury uh, uh, that their upper extremity uh, gets imparted to during a, a big traumatic event. Thank you for a wonderful, lively discussion. I just noticed that we are already seven minutes past the hour. So uh, I want to make sure that no one have uh, any other comments that you would like to share with the group before the wrap up. I just had one question, a quick one uh, for you, Peter. You'd mentioned your use of EMG uh, has increased. And I was just wondering if you can expound on that a little bit. Uh, in terms of these injuries? Yeah, sure. I, um, I, the use of EMG has not increased. It's just simply a helpful tool for prognostication and also just uh, intraoperative exploration and awareness for uh, neurography, if necessary, of one or more branches of the supraclavicular nerve. Um, and it's only helpful if the patient's more than two weeks out from the injury. But when it comes to scapulas, they often are. So I, I think it's 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 uh, helpful information to uh, supplement your workup. That's that's mainly the point. So, Peter, is that uh, because you're in malunions, you're doing so much more dissection, and you want to be sure if the damage is there that you didn't do it, uh, or just to be wary of what nerves may need to be decompressed or evaluated? Um, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it it's um, it's a little of both. Um, you know, I I uh, I just like to have I do, I like to know what what uh, uh, hand I'm I'm dealing <laughs> when I go into surgery, and I I mean I, I think it's uh, such a high percentage of uh, uh, suprascapular nerve injuries and axillary nerve injuries and in, in these high energy scapula fractures that. It's it's worth knowing, and the you know most approaches uh, allow you to evaluate the suprascapular nerve, and uh, it the ones the, the fractures that go up into the the true anatomic neck lateral to the coracoid um, or at the base of the spinal glenoid notch those are the ones that uh, are have a high incidence of suprascapular nerve injuries, and uh, often they're trapped in the fracture or the callus scar tissue. Um, I don't think we've completely sorted out whether the, um, the small external rotation deficiency um, that we see in these uh, surgical follow-ups has to do with the injury or the surgery or maybe a little of both. But it doesn't seem to be a functional problem for the patients. Plus, Peter, I think there's a component that you can kind of get, 
guide your outcome. If they have a suprascapular nerve injury at, at six to nine months, that you're probably going to improve some component with a malunion, but I think they're still going to have some residuals uh, long-term from that. So I, I think that's a, another good point that you can kind of guide potentially that, boy, we can get things looking good um, anatomically from a uh, biomechanical component or a dis, you know, shoulder dyskinesia component, but still if they got a suprascapular nerve injury, there's only so much that you can help them with. You can help them a lot with their plantar polar angle, but some of the other things are gonna be permanent. Dr. Cole, there's actually a question that Dr. Weatherby already addressed, but I think it's sort of along some of these lines we're talking about with nerve function. And the question was, are there any specific concurrent traumatic nerve injuries, brachial plexus injury or axillary nerve injury that you would find a contraindication to scapular ORF? Or I guess my, then addition to that, is there anything that about a nerve injury that would change what you do either from the preoperative workup or how you manage them operatively? Yeah, well, you know, um, the, it's not often that scapulothoracic dissociation, uh, which is on the far extreme, uh, is associated with scapula fractures because of the uh, vector of forces required to create those injuries. But if a brachial uh, plexus injury is severe enough, um, you know, we do a, a workup with an MRI and uh, uh, and uh, a, a myelogram, and if the uh, cervical roots are uh, uh, torn uh, or there's a complete uh, lesion of the brachial plexus, and I'm thinking more of uh, 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 above elbow amputation uh, and eventual uh, arthrodesis of the glenohumeral joint, you know, those are rare uh, situations, and that's more a discussion in the context of scapulothoracic dissociation, which uh, Cliff has also wrote a, written about, uh, uh, bad injuries, but um, different treatment considerations. Incomplete lesions, you know, um, generally um, uh, generally resolve, and uh, I've seen axillary and suprascapular nerves, which are are, are completely um, out uh, and uh, at uh, roughly between eight to 10 months uh, begin a, uh, a recovery when the nerve regenerates and, and uh, matches the motor end plates. It's impressive to see how quickly patients will get better at that point. Okay, well, I just wanna be mindful of everyone's time. Um, so thank you so much for the discussion today. Uh, it's really wonderful to have all different perspectives from really the world expert in this uh, topic. Um, there are two more uh, journal club coming up, one in May on infections and one uh, in June for pediatrics. So please remember to register for those sessions. Um, all the recording will be available um, We'll, for this session will be available within 24 hours in YouTube and the rest of the other sessions uh, for Journal Club will be available that you can access in YouTube as well as through your AO account. Thank you everyone, have a good night. Mm -hmm.